You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. I'd like for us to look at a passage that we were already introduced to last week. If you could please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We'll look at verses 17 through 20. I think we looked at, uh, I think, I know we looked at 17 through 19. Uh, We'll look at 17 through 20 this morning. I want to do something a little bit different, but first let me talk to to our little theologians. Uh, You guys, I'd like for you to draw a picture of a lot of people listening to Jesus. A lot of people. But there's something interesting about the Sermon on the Mount and that there's a lot of people there, but Jesus is mostly speaking to 12 which is not a lot of people. So you're drawing a lot of people, but as Jesus speaks to these lot of people, they're all there. He's really talking to 12. He's really talking to 12. And that matters. So that's what you can work on drawing for me. Luke chapter 6 is where we are. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it would be good for you to raise your hand and get one. Uh, Austin or Patrick can get a Bible to you. Um, the reason why is this is one of those sermons where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip back and forth because the Sermon on the Mount shows up in two places in Scripture. It shows up in Luke chapter 6, but it also shows up in Matthew chapter 5. And I just... I, don't, I was going to say I hate doing this to you. Actually, I don't hate doing this to you. I don't feel really bad at all. Um, but you're just going to have to do this, right? You're just going to have to do, look at Matthew 5 and Luke 6. Because what I want to do is I, is I want to just, just kind of give an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Almost every, uh, every person, believer or non-believer, has heard that Jesus preached this message called a Sermon on the Mount, well, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at uh, the, that teaching that has been called the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, it's not the best name for the sermon. The sermon's not named the Sermon on the Mount in Scripture. That comes from um, Augustine in the 5th in the century. But, you know, sometimes leaders are so significant, they coin phrases and, and you just keep them. So, I mean, honestly, 5th century to 2015, crazy. But... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're calling it the Sermon on the Mount. It shows up two places in Scripture, uh, Luke 6, Matthew 5 through 7. I just, here's what I want to do. I just want to kind of lay the groundwork for how to read the Sermon on the Mount, just an introduction. So it could be that this morning will feel a little less like a sermon and a little bit more like a, like a lecture or a talk. But I, there's, there's groundwork that needs to be laid before we're going to uh, effectively understand what exactly this Sermon on the Mount is and what it intends to do. Uh, so we should be Luke uh, chapter 6, verses uh, 17 through 20. That's where you should be in your Bibles. Let me do this. Let me pray for our time together, and then we'll read the passage. So Luke six seventeen. that's where you should be. But let's pray together. Our Father, we love your word, but we need you to fill our hearts with a growing affection for your word because we become bored with it and we neglect it. Spirit, would you work in us in such a way that as we look in your word even this morning that we would understand what we find there 
even if we don't understand fully, and also that we would be encouraged to go from this place and to continue looking into Holy Scripture, that we would do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and return on Sunday. Do this, Holy Spirit, by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. Listen to God's word. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is the word of our Lord. What I'd like for you to do is I'd I'd like for you to remember that right here in Luke chapter 6, 17 to the end, you see this Sermon on the Mount. I know it's not called Sermon on the Mount here. It seems it's called the opposite. But right here, Luke chapter 6, beginning at, actually beginning at verse 20 on. But also Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Okay? Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I want you to know that those are the two places where this sermon occurs. Now, when Jesus uh, prepares to preach this sermon, he has done something. He has gathered his 12 disciples. He has selected them. And what he's about to do is he's going to describe to them a certain kind of lifestyle. A certain kind of lifestyle. A lifestyle of the kingdom of God. Lifestyle of the kingdom of God. So he's actually, he's brought these disciples to him. In Mark chapter 3, remember Jesus says that he has desired them, but so too has he appointed them, and he's given them a title of apostles. That's what Luke said to us last week. These are his disciples, and he's drawn them to himself, and now he's going to tell them what it looks like to live a kingdom lifestyle, even on earth, right? Even on earth. Now, is This sermon is debated. A lot of familiar passages here. A lot of non-believers will actually quote passages from the Sermon on the Mount. They're very earthy passages. They're they're easy to understand. Um, You know, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, judge not lest you be judged, Uh, take the log out of your own eye. And then, you know, the the Beatitudes, we read one of them, uh, bless are you who who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. These are like those kinds of passages that are quoted often by non-believers. But one of the reasons why the Sermon on the Mount is such a debated passage is because it seems to, Jesus seems to uh, hold up these impossibly high standards. They're things that I can't possibly do. I get that I'm not to be adulterous, but to not even be adulterous in my heart? That the standard seems impossibly high. That you should know that during the Middle Ages, a very popular way of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount was to say that it was addressed to two, two kinds of Christians. One is your run-of-the-mill Christian, your ordinary Christian. And then another one, uh, another uh, tr- uh, track in the Sermon on the Mount is for those who are extraordinary Christians, uh, Christians who are more devout. So an ordinary Christian will be a Christian in, their, in an ordinary vocation, but an extraordinary Christian will be a Christian who actually uh, takes vows to live a monastic, ascetic life. 
those who enter into a, a community of, uh, of saints uh, like uh, Benedictine monks. And that was a popular way in the Middle Ages of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. And, and what they're after is that it just seems like the standards are so impossibly high. And so that's, why one of the re- that's one of the reasons why the Sermon on the Mount is debated. By the way, that, that interpretation in the Middle Ages of a two-tiered sanctification, uh, common Christian growth and then, uh, then higher Christian growth, uh, I don't agree with that at all. I don't think that's a biblical understanding of Jesus' sermon to his disciples. But that is one of the reasons why the sermon has been hotly debated. But another reason why the sermon has been hotly debated is because it sounds as though Jesus is actually tightening the vice of the Mosaic law. Do you know what I mean by that? Like a vice, like you turn the vice and he's like tightening the vice of the Mosaic law. He seems to be going like in the opposite direction of grace. I thought that Christianity was all about grace. And then we look at the sermon, it's like, wait a minute, apparently it's not about grace. Apparently it is about uh, uh, an uber Mosaic law. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 18 and 19, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he goes further. This is is Matthew 5. So this is is Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so it sounds on the surface like Jesus is elevating the law in a place that it doesn't belong in the covenant of grace. And that's another reason why the sermon is hotly debated. How are we to understand Jesus' apparent tightening of the vice of the Mosaic law? So one reason is the standards seem to be impossibly high. That's one of the reasons why it's debated. Another reason why it's debated is because it sounds an awful lot like the law, and it's hard to discern in the sermon grace. Well, those are difficult debates. I'm actually not going to address them. We can talk about it afterwards, so I'm just kind of offering those as a teaser, and here's why. I think this is really the main reason why the Sermon on the Mount is most hotly debated, is because we as Christians, right, certainly as non-believers, but even as Christians, we simply don't want to be told how to live. It's one thing to believe in Christianity, and, and to uh, leave the domain of darkness into the domain of light through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's another thing for Jesus to actually flex his muscles and exert lordship over our lives. Surely I have become a Christian and all Jesus wants is for me to be happy. Surely Jesus will never place a standard on me for holiness that's actually going to be unhappy for me. Surely Jesus wants all of my desires to be met. He wants me to be wealthy and successful and to... Uh, be employed and to be good looking. Uh, He wants all of my relationships to be good. Surely that's exactly what Jesus wants for me. And we're afraid to actually have someone tell us how to live, to understand that as Christians, we aren't the Lord of our lives. Another is. Jesus is. The victor is the Lord of our lives, and he can hurt us in this life. He can discipline us in this life, and we can face persecution in this life. How can that be? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. How can that be? And I think that's really the root of why the, why the Sermon on the Mount is so difficult. We just don't want to be told how to live. 
But I want you to listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about the Sermon on the Mount. Sinclair Ferguson is one of my favorite biblical scholars. And he says this. He says, the Sermon on the Mount sets before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. He goes on, he says, this is the behavior pattern for the kingdom we have become a part of through faith. Now, we're going to find some things in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to read as disagreeable. I'm not sure what it means to love my enemies, but I'm pretty sure loving them is what I don't want to do. I've defined them as enemies. And I'm not sure that I want to use my money for purposes other than myself. So I'm not sure I want to use my money for others. I'm not sure that I want God watching not, uh, not simply my actions, but actually my thoughts and knowing those thoughts and judging those thoughts. But Ferguson says it sets before us a glorious vision. The Sermon on the Mount is a glorious passage of Scripture. And it shows us what it looks like to live as a Christian in this life. It shows us what it looks like to live in a place where our citizenship is not. I live here right now, but that's not where my citizenship is. I belong elsewhere. And I'm always going to act as if I belong elsewhere. It's a glorious vision of what God is doing with our lives. Slowly, perhaps even painfully, indeed painfully, but this is where he is taking us. We don't have to wait for the new heavens and the new earth to have Jesus' reign on our lives right now. And I suffer, and it's difficult, but I'm doing this for the glory of my Savior. And I'm being prepared to dwell with him for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And as I look back on this life, it will pale in comparison to the glory that I have being with my Savior. The Sermon on the Mount Yes, it tells us how to live in the kingdom of God as Christians. And it hurts us, and it's painful, and it strikes at some very precious desires. But it sets before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. I love that quote. Well, I just want to say this this morning. I want to say that the Sermon on the Mount marks an intensified revelation of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus has already, in, in, in Matthew and in Luke, he's preached about the kingdom of God. But this, this particular sermon marks an intensified revelation of the kingdom of God. And I want to try and answer four questions, some easier than others. The first question is, are we witnessing a significant moment? Are we witnessing a significant moment? It could be this is just like a normal part of Scripture. But are we witnessing something that's significant? Is Jesus setting the scene up to show us that it's something significant? I believe that he is. The second question is, who's the sermon addressed to? I've already hinted at that, but there's implications. And the third is, what does the sermon presuppose? What does the sermon presuppose? That's an interesting question. And then the last one is this, how does the sermon help Christians living in the information age? Does it have, does it have contemporary value, relevancy, worth to us? And I want to say two things there. But first of all, are we witnessing a significant moment? If you turn to Matthew's gospel and you look how Matthew, by, guided by the Holy Spirit, as he sets up this, te this body of teaching, uh, Matthew uh, gives us a couple of cues to let us know that something significant is about to happen. If you look in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, this is just prior to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has... Uh, uh, 
prophesied that light will dawn, or actually Matthew has said that Jesus' work is showing that light will dawn in Galilee. Uh, you, you have to remember that where Jesus is doing his early ministry in Galilee, that, that territory used to belong to the Assyrians. You remember the fall of the northern kingdom? The fall of the northern kingdom, Assyria comes in and, and destroys those ten northern kingdoms of Israel. Well, Galilee is a part of that territory that was destroyed by the Assyrians. And yet God says that even in that wasteland that has been destroyed by the Assyrians, light will dawn. For at that time, uh, Matthew says in 4.17, For at that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus is in the land that was conquered by the Assyrians, owned by the Assyrians. And Jesus goes into that land. And Matthew 4.17 says, At that time he began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That Greek word in Gidzo means that the kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. How interesting that Jesus would go into a wasteland that was owned by by enormous enemies of Israel and say the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, when Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, he means kingdom of God. Luke uses kingdom of God. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. And then keep, keep in Matthew uh, 4 and 5. Look at 5.1. Matthew 5.1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is a significant scene. Matthew is saying that Jesus did something. There's crowds of people around him, but Jesus separates himself from the main crowds and he sits down and his disciples came to him. And then uh, finally, Matthew 5, verse 2. He gathers his disciples and he opens his mouth. Isn't that a funny phrase? Why would Matthew say that, okay, so Jesus got his disciples, they came together and then Jesus opened his mouth. Well, he's speaking, and speakers, um, unless they have a, like a little wooden puppet, they always open their mouths. It's what speakers do. Why this additional detail? And I wonder if when Matthew says that Jesus opened his mouth, he wants us to go back to Matthew 4, 4 in the temptation. And Jesus says to Satan, he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then in Matthew 5, 2, Jesus opens his mouth and teaching comes out. It's a significant moment and I think we, we see that significance echoed in Luke. Look at Luke 4, 43. Okay, see I told you, right? You got to do this back and forth thing. If you look at Luke 4, 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of what? The gospel, the good news of grace, the good news of the covenant of grace. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. You see the same thing. Jesus is saying that he's embarking on a preaching ministry in which he preaches the kingdom of God. And then just before this scene that we have read this morning, Jesus prays on a mountain all night. All night he prays on a mountain. And then he invites his disciples to come to him. And Luke 6, 17 says, He came down with them on a level place. 
on a level place. Some scholars will call Matthew's version the Sermon on the Mount and Luke's version the Sermon on the Plains. Uh, I think that what is happening is that uh, Jesus is higher on a mountain, but he comes down to either the foothills of that particular mountain or a plateau associated with that mountain for his Sermon on the Mount. So it is both a mountain and it is a level place. But we see in Luke 6, 17 that he comes down with them on a level place. And then look at verse 20. Luke 6, 20. He lifted up his eyes on the disciples. Matthew says he opens his mouth. And Luke says he lifted his eyes. And I want us to understand that there's something significant happening here. Interpreters, even uh, Protestant interpreters, uh, some, not, I'm not fans of them, but some have argued that this uh, collection of teaching that Jesus is about to offer actually uh, occurred sporadically through his entire ministry, and it was uh, the editorial work of Matthew and Luke that actually uh, gathered them together to make a sermon. I don't like that argument. I don't have tons of proof, but I think that what Matthew and Luke are doing is they're trying to capture one sermon, but it's a sermon that didn't last 10 minutes. I tried this. Read Matthew uh, chapter 5 through chapter 7. You can read it in about 10 minutes. I'm not, sh I'm not convinced that it was a 10-minute sermon. I think rather that it was a sermon that was over one or two or maybe even three days. It was a body of teaching in which Jesus is deliberately gathering his disciples around them because he wants them to hear something special, something significant. Some call this Jesus' manifesto. Jesus' manifesto. Good scholars will call, call this Jesus' manifesto. A manifesto is a public declaration of a, a policy or an objective. It's almost as if uh, a, a Jesus is saying to his disciples, okay, this is how things are going to be. This is how things are going to be. You are mine. You belong to me. This is how things are going to be if you belong to me. To me, it's a manifesto. And we see these, these little uh, grammatical cues that something significant. Okay, so um, are they witnessing, are we witnessing a significant moment? Yes, very deliberate body of teaching, a single body of teaching. It's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's called these disciples, and now he's telling them what it is going to look like to suffer with him. Now, who is the sermon addressed to? We're told both by Matthew and Luke, especially by Luke, lots of people here. A great crowd, great multitude of people from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Tyre, from Sidon. A huge body of people, and yet we still have Luke 6.20 that says he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And I think this is the implication. This sermon is meant for those who have been united to Christ by faith. The sermon is meant for Christians. When a non-Christian reads this sermon, they should hear just law, 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 law. This is a terrible standard, an impossible standard, right? That's one way a non-believer can read the Sermon on the Mount, and one way non-believers have read the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes non-believers will read the sermon far more altruistically, and they'll readily quote from the Sermon on the Mount, this is how the world ought to be. This is how the world ought to be. And they'll use the teaching of Jesus to create a secular view of, of uh, justice, of cultural transformation, but the sermon is actually addressed to Christians, people who have been united to Christ Jesus through faith in him. 
And when a Christian reads this, a Christian shouldn't be filled with guilt and depression. Woe is me, there's no way I can attain this. That's not how it should be read. A non-believer should read it that way. Of course, they're going to think that Christianity is just some kind of uh, legalistic moral code. But the Christian should not read it and be overcome with guilt and depression. A Christian should be hopeful as they read this. The sermon is meant for Christians. It's meant for people who have been united to Christ Jesus. And if it's meant for those kinds of people, then the sermon is meant for people who actually belong to Jesus for all eternity. That this time on earth is short. It's limited. Some of us feel that more powerfully than others. It's a limited time, brother and sister, because there will be all eternity with your Lord and Savior. And the hurts and the struggles that you endure here, you don't endure those alone. You have Jesus. You are united to him. And you'll see that all the more clearly as you spend eternity with him. Who is the sermon addressed to? It is addressed to people who have been united to Jesus Christ in faith. A third thing, what does the sermon presuppose? What's in Jesus' mind as he preaches the sermon that he already knows? And that if you don't know that he knows that, you're going to read the sermon in an entirely different way. There's two things. First, Jesus presupposes that he has responsibility for these men. That's, that's the first presupposition. Jesus presupposes that he has responsibility for these men. He has called them. He has desired them. He has named them. He has anointed them. And because they belong to him, Jesus is willing to take full responsibility for their failures. He's willing to take full responsibility for their sanctification. That's the first presupposition. Jesus takes responsibility for them. Let me tell you just a little bit what I mean. These are scriptures that actually come uh, later in the story of redemption. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 5 in a number of ways that we're always weak and feeble before God. We're always weak and feeble before God. But what Paul says is he says that Christians are called to walk not by the flesh but by the Spirit. Christians are called to walk in a certain way. Jesus is going to tell his disciples what that way looks like, the lifestyle of the Christian. But Paul is, is going to remind us that none of us walk without Christ, that we walk accompanied by the Spirit. In fact, Paul is going to chastise the Galatians in Galatians 3.3. Listen to this, this uh, verse. It's so offensive. He says, foolish Galatians, foolish Galatians, Having begun by the Spirit, that is your conversion. Having been converted by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Were you converted so that you could then turn your back on the source of that conversion and live a solo, isolated life? And Paul says, no. And so the, a great presupposition for the sermon is that Jesus is not laying a law upon the disciples that he has not laid upon himself. He's not laying a law upon his disciples that they have to walk through by themselves. He has promised to be with them because they are united to him. He accompanies them. He cares for them. You see, oftentimes when we think of what it means to be a Christian, we think that we say yes to Jesus. 
But then you just live according to that yes response. You live in such a way that people know that you said yes. And it's your job. And it's hard. And you're not perfect. But that's your job because you said yes to Jesus. Now, if you don't say yes to Jesus, you have all kinds of excuses. There's actually biblical rationale for this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about sexual promiscuity and immorality among those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. But we, of course, say, I am not one of those. I am a Christian. I have said yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now I have to live in such a way that when people look at me, they see, uh, they see that, that yes somehow. And that's not helpful. Jesus says that you belong to him. And he doesn't convert you by the Holy Spirit that he might then turn his back on you. Jesus is with us moment by moment. The life that we live, Paul says, is the life that we live from his resurrection life, 2 Corinthians 4, 11. The power of Jesus' resurrection is with us so that we are able to die gradually every day. Isn't that funny? 2 Corinthians 4, 11, crazy verse. We gradually die each day. Why? So that the life of Jesus will be manifest in our bodies. His life makes itself known in our bodies. He's with us. It's not, I said yes to the gospel, and now i got to live that way. I said yes to the gospel, and I'm united to Christ Jesus, and his death gives me life day by day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.11. First presupposition. What does the sermon presuppose? That's the question. The first presupposition is that his disciples belong to him, and he will never leave them or forsake them. The second presupposition is this. Uh, Jesus presupposes that a new kingdom has been inaugurated by his coming. A new kingdom, he's going to say in Luke 17, is in their midst. That is, Jesus is not saying to them, look, I am about to do something fantastic. And if you hang with me about two and a half years from now, you're going to witness that fantastic thing. Yes, he is going to die on the cross and be resurrected and ascend into heaven 40 days later. But Jesus is saying, right now, the reign of God has broken into the world. The reign of God has broken into the world right now. Jesus, Jesus presupposes that at his birth, there is an entrance of, into the world of a new kingdom. It is the present reign of God. It is the present power of God. Now, I don't know how you hear that. I don't know if you hear that as a cynic and you go, well, you know, ancient people think that kind of stuff. But in 2015, I see no evidence of the power of God or the reign of God here. I look around and I see uh, de deplorable circumstances. Uh, if you're here as a Christian, you might look around and see, say, I see remarkable cultural decay. There is no evidence of the power and reign of God in this life. And yet Jesus says to his disciples that God's kingdom is there now and that God's kingdom is here with us today. This is a difficult teaching because for sure we know that one day our Lord and Savior is going to return. He's going to return. What does that mean? Does that mean that's when the kingdom of God starts? Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God, God starts now. But one day that kingdom of God is going to be experienced uh, more fully. 
Let me just uh, tell you how uh, theologians have wrapped their mind around Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of God is both here and that the kingdom of God is still not yet. A scholar by the name of Oscar Kuhlman, 20th century, uh, described this teaching as the kingdom of God is an inaugurated eschatology. Isn't that great? So, there, so there's your dinner party phrase. Use that and people will be very quiet. Inaugurated eschatology, that's really what I believe as a, as a Protestant. Um, here's, here's what uh, Kuman means. Uh, Kuman says that Jesus is beginning the something now that actually has its roots in the future. Eschatology refers to the last things, the things that are way off in the future. Jesus returning, that is a truth of eschatology. That is a part of the last things that are taught in Scripture. And what Kuman says is he says those last things are not just in the future. They've actually been inaugurated in the life and ministry of Jesus. These last things are actually stretched out. Eschatology has joined us in the present. Inaugurated last things. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Well, Kuhlman figured a lot of people are not going to get this. So he used this illustration. He said, during World War II, in June of 1944, D-Day struck Normandy. That was when the Allies invaded Normandy, June of 1944. However, it wasn't until almost a year after May of 1945 in which Germany actually surrendered. And so what Kuhlmann says is he says, you know, there's a gap between D-Day and VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. He says, there's this gap. And he says, that's like the kingdom of God coming, that the kingdom of God is here, it is inaugurated in the present, but there's still a future aspect of the kingdom of God. Is that helpful? We talk about this in our uh, Faith Presbyterian 101 class, that this notion of the kingdom being, as one scholar has said, already here but still not yet here, that notion is, uh, is very controversial in the sense, to, to what degree is the kingdom of God here? How many of those future kingdom realities can I expect to be here in the present? For instance, I am a minister of the gospel, I am ordained by uh, the Presbyterian Church in America. I've been to seminary. I have been a pastor for, what, 15 years. So when I pray that people would, would uh, become healed, man, that ought to stick. What's wrong with that? When I pray that people, that people would be healed, that should stick and they should be healed right then and there. In fact, James chapter 5 says this is exactly what an elder should do to go to those who are sick and anoint them with oil and pray for their healing. What's wrong with that logic? If the kingdom of God is here, ought I not be able to just pray and it stick and the person would be healed? You see, you see this debate. To what degree do we expect future realities of the kingdom of God to be with us here in the present? Denominations are founded on this debate. But Protestants agree that the kingdom is both here and not yet. It's here and not yet. And Jesus presupposes this. There are aspects of our lives as we go out into the world that we live lives that are actually realities of the power of God. His reign in my life can be manifested in my life as I go out into the world. How is that possible? Because the kingdom of God is here. God is asserting his reign and his rule on the world right now. 
There's a couple of ways of looking at that. One way might be that as a Christian, I go into my vocation uh, being a different sort of person. I'm a different kind of employee to my employer because the kingdom realities are with me to such a degree that I come equipped with the power of God and that I don't lie to my employer. I don't lie to him or her. I go into that vocation as a Christian. That is the power of God manifesting itself in our world. That's one way to look of the present reality of the kingdom. Now, there's still a future reality, but there is a present reality. And Luke is going to say, and Matthew will say in Matthew 13, that these present realities are oftentimes very small and invisible, like throwing a seed in the ground and somehow it grows. I don't know what's going on there, but it grows or the mustard seed that is so very small, and yet over time it slowly grows and grows and grows and it ends up being huge and powerful. These kingdom realities are very small, secretive, mysterious, a yeast working in a batter. You can't see it, but it's there. And sometimes it doesn't look like it's there, but it's there. And I would say to you this morning that if you're a Christian, you ought to go into your vocations in such a way that you bring the righteous reign of God to that vocation, that you live glorifying God in everything that you think, say, and do. Sometimes that will be noticed by your colleagues, and probably most of the time it just isn't. But that's one way to understand that the kingdom of God is here, and yet it's not yet here. But the best way to understand that the kingdom of God is here is the life of the church life of the church. Jesus has seen fit to build for himself this building, this edifice, this structure of people who are filled by the Holy Spirit and glued together by Jesus' grace, sustained by his grace in such a way that on earth, regardless of how deplorable and disgusting this earth grows, there will always be a church. And there we see the clearest most insightful picture of the reign of God today. There is a church, and she may be feeble, and she may be small, but she is there proclaiming the doctrine of salvation in Christ Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross, and that that is the only means of salvation, that it is the only medicine to assuage our lost consciences. And it's the church that brings that message. It's the church that shows great love for one another because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to such a degree that outsiders will see our love for one another and be struck by it. This is the kingdom of God. This is the inaugurated eschatology of God's kingdom today. We can see that. And it might be very dim in your vocations as you go there as Christians and it might also be very dim in the life of the church. She seems so insignificant and small and persecuted. And yet you, Christian, are an emissary of the Lord Jesus Christ. You proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, not just with your words, but in your lives. Because the death of Jesus Christ, moment by moment, is strengthening you in your life. That you might actually die to him and live in him. And so too in the life of the church. The church carries forth the message of Jesus Christ. That any and all can come to Him and be readily received by Him in His grace and saved for all eternity. No one is off limits with the work of the church. How's that for the power of the kingdom? No one is so disgusting, so sinful, so deplorable that the church can't come and touch that person 
and the healing of Christ Jesus enter that person as they say yes to the gospel of grace. What does the sermon presuppose? Jesus is responsible for his children. He keeps them, he holds them, he is with them day by day. The second thing Jesus presupposes is the kingdom is here. The realities of God's power are here today. They're partial, they're not full, but they're here today. And then the last thing, how does this sermon help Christians living in the information age? I just want to say two things. The first thing is this, that we can call the age that we live in an age of promises. A man by the name of Carl Truman wrote a book called Creedal Imperative. Creedal Imperative. It's a wonderful book, and in this book, Carl Truman uh, investigates the fact that technology is always positive. Technology is always growing. The, the future is always better. It's a motto. It is a, a standard position of technology. And so, Carl Truman says the age that we live in is an age of promise. Why do we assume that technology is always going to get better and better and better and better and better? Why is that? But we, we do. We do. We assume that um, our lives are going to get better, that we're going to live longer, that technology is going to make life easier, that the, str that the struggles that we've endured uh, in the past are one day going to be eradicated by, by technology because technology is always improving. And what, what Carl Truman is saying is he's saying that we live in an age in which it is filled with promise. We assume that the newer is always better. And he says that's smoke and mirrors. That's smoke and mirrors. Why do we assume that technology is going to make life better and better and better? And people did this on the eve of World War I. In the industrial era, that was exactly the motto, that technology makes life better. And it turns out that technology enabled people to kill, kill others more efficiently. It was a bit of a wake-up call, but not enough of a wake-up call, because we all assume that, that the world is going to get better and better because of technology. So how does the sermon help Christians living in the information age? Well, the promise of technology is smoke and mirrors, but the promise of the return of our Savior is not. The promise of the work of the Spirit is not smoke and mirrors. Jesus Christ will one day return. And as Jesus returns, Jesus will make all things right. It won't be technology that saves us, although the promises are always there with technology. It will be Jesus who comes and eradicates sickness and death. Jesus will situate our identities properly. Jesus will shine with his face the glory of God where we will never doubt again. So in the, in the uh, information age, we live amidst tons of promises of greatness and glory, but there is nothing to substantiate those promises. The promise that you have, Christian, is that your Savior will sustain you tomorrow just like he is today. And the day after tomorrow, he will sustain you. He will be with you. And he will one day glorify that body that causes you so much pain today. And he will make all things well. It's a better promise, a secure promise than the promise of technology. How does the sermon help Christians living in the information age? By offering a secure promise. The second thing is this. 
And here I go back to the uh, early uh, 70s uh, when cultural critics were writing uh, about uh, the dawn of a new age, a uh, youth culture that is breaking down um, all of the former habits and bureaucracy and morals of former ages. A guy by the name of Theodore Rossick wrote a book called The Making of a Counterculture. He coined the name or the phrase counterculture. And he says that young people of his day, and here we're talking early 70s, are people who are breaking down boundaries and they're making a new world. People are on a quest. They're searching and they want to change things and make things new. And I would say that all of the writing that's been done in the last two or three years in particular regarding millennials, I hear exactly the same thing, that millennials want to create a new world that there is uh, this great quest for an alternative to almost everything. Now, I think sometimes that a lot of the critique of millennial culture is actually offensive to millennials. I'm not sure any of us really like being pigeonholed like that or caricatured. But when we think about the information age, we can uh, think about an age of uh, mission or an age of vision making. Everything is new. We're going to create new things. I talk to people who are looking for work, and it's very interesting to me that they're very concerned about the mission of the company that they'll be working for. Mission is important, and so the uh, age of mission is an age in which we live in right now. There's extraordinary optimism for creating new companies, for, for creating new ways of doing things. And Theodore Rossick comes to mind because he actually asked the question, what is this reality that youth are asking for? What is this reality that youth are searching for? And I want to say that we actually in Christ Jesus have an answer for that. What am I seeking? What is the mission that I want to be a part of? It's the mission that comes with being a part of Jesus Christ's family. That question is actually answered. I don't have to search for what my mission is going to be. I don't have to search for where I need to go, where my identity is satisfied. As a Christian, I'm a part of another mission. I belong to him. He answers all of those questions. He says we're going in this direction, that we're going to do this together. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells me what my lifestyle ought to look like. And even though it's painful, this is Jesus' plan for my own glorification. Although it's painful, it's the mission that belongs to someone else. So how does a sermon help Christians living in an information age? It provides a secure promise for things that we think are promised. And it provides a secure mission for something that I end up searching for but never finding. Well, this is life in Christ. And what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to read Matthew 5 through 7 and uh, the tail end of Luke chapter 6. Because I believe that Matthew and Luke both uh, present this sermon to us so that we would see that, the, that this sermon marks an intensified revelation of the kingdom of God. If you're here this morning as a Christian, you belong to this very kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for gathering us to worship you. We ask that you would teach us your word even as we go from this place by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.